Do you ever get the sense that some places in the world are just so lost, so separated from the knowledge of Jesus that there's no hope? Well, David Garrison has a reminder for you. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. That means in every community, everywhere in the world, we know that the Holy Spirit has already been at work there for the last 2,000 years. He's giving these dreams and visions and restless hearts and dissatisfaction. Oftentimes when you see a lot of violence in the Muslim world, it's a result of this conviction, this sense of, it's not right, I've got to tear the world apart. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and we're in our studio today in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, with Dr. David Garrison. He is the executive director of an organization called Global Gates, He is also the author of a book called A Wind in the House of Islam, and we are going to talk about that. Dr. Garrison, welcome to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk a little bit about your history. You've been a missionary. You've been in lots of different places around the world. Uh, Just give our listeners a little bit of an overview of your career and background. My wife and I and our two children uh, took uh, the assignment of Libyan Arabs. I studied Arabic for several years in Egypt and Tunisia and uh, uh, projected ministries into uh, Libya from a non-residential base. We were not allowed to live there as Americans. Uh, I tell people during those years, we learned a lot of ways not to win Muslims to Christ, (laughs) Um, by which I mean, you know, we did everything we knew to do. They just didn't seem to be very responsive at that time. Now, 10 years later, flash forward, and we uh, took an assignment as director of Southern Baptist work in South Asia, which is India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, uh, Bhutan, and the Maldive Islands. We had more Muslims in South Asia than in all the Middle East and North Africa combined. And something was different. This was around 2002, 2003. We had lots of Muslim background believer partners. We were seeing a lot of Muslims come to Christ, began in Bangladesh, and then began spreading to other ethno-linguistic people groups across that region. We stayed in that work until 2009 when we relocated to the Colorado Springs area to learn from and share best practices with other Great Commission Christians. There's so many of them based in the Colorado Springs area. And over the course of that time, uh, became more and more aware of the fact that something was changing in the Muslim world. And that's what led us to uh, this investigative uh, research over the next three years into the Muslim world, into Muslim movements to Christ, ultimately resulting in a a book called uh, A Wind in the House of Islam. I want to go back to 1992, and you're trying to reach out to Libyan Arabs. And you said, we discovered lots of ways that don't work. Why do you think it was such a hard thing? Why were they so close to the gospel at that time? Well, you know, communicators have often referenced the fact that the medium is the message. And as the medium, as Americans, we didn't fully realize that even though we loved them, 
they saw us as a threat. We were coming in in the shadow of uh, embargoes against uh, Libya and the Libyan people. During the Reagan administration, American uh, bombers went in and, and tried to bomb uh, Gaddafi's uh, one of his palaces there near Tripoli. He was actually sleeping in a tent in the back like a Bedouin like he liked to do, but uh, several of his adopted children were killed. And uh, they actually named a school there in Tripoli the School of the Martyrs of the American Aggression. So when a Libyan meets you as an American, their their baseline is not necessarily positive. Yeah, even if they don't know me. I was standing in line trying to get a visa one time, and a Libyan behind me was trying to get a visa for his girlfriend. And when he saw my U.S. passport, he, he leaned over and gently said, please tell your government not to kill my people. Wow. Well, that makes it difficult, you know, the, the good news, uh, uh, how beautiful are the feet of those bringing good news. You know, it was, wasn't seen that way by them. And so uh, that's a part of the message. Mm-hmm. We had to realize that we have a burden of who we are has advantages and disadvantages. And trying to find a way to present the gospel so people see Jesus but not Jesus wrapped in an American flag or in American culture. Yeah, which is an important thing. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Dr. David Garrison. He's the executive director of Global Gates, and we'll have information for you at vomradio.net about how to connect with Global Gates online. So, David, in 2011, you start looking into this amazing phenomenon of movements, not not one or two Muslims coming to Christ, but literally hundreds and thousands. So let's talk a little bit about that. First, what makes it a movement? What qualifies it as a movement of Muslims coming to Christ? Well, I tried to be very careful, Todd, not to uh, speak of apples and oranges. And so I define in the book, for my purposes, when there's been at least a thousand baptized believers in 10 years or less— that occurs in a particular ethno-linguistic people group. Mm-hmm. So these aren't just a thousand scattered around the world. These are all, say, Somali Muslims <clears throat> or all Kurdish, Kurmanji-speaking Muslims. If there's been a thousand baptisms in 10 years or less, then we say, okay, something's going on there. This is a movement. Now, in some cases, we don't, we don't try to say how many there are. There may be 100,000. Uh, come to faith in baptism during that period of time. The truth is it's often hard to know how many in terms of the upper limits because some are secret. There's nothing more fake than to pretend a precision that you just don't have. So we we feel very comfortable that there were at least a thousand. And in many of these instances, we can speak of 30, 40, 50,000 just because dissertations have been written about it. it. It's that significant. And then talk to me about the idea of the different rooms, because mm. the, the book is called A Wind in the House of Islam. Talk about that, the, the house, and then the different rooms within the house. Well, the term House of Islam, uh, Dar al-Islam in Arabic, uh, comes out of the ninth century Islamic uh, jurist Abu Hanifa. He said the, the whole world can be divided into two rooms. There's the Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam, where Islam is dominant and where Islamic ways are practiced. And then there's the part of the world that's not that way, which he called Dar al-Harb, the House of War. And the house of war is not yet. Not yet the house of Islam. Right. So we found even then as I was doing my research that the house of Islam with today about 23% of the world's population, 1.7 billion Muslims, that it's by no means a monolith. You can't speak of all Muslims being the same. In fact, they're often at war and conflict with each other. 
So as we looked at the Muslim world, we saw that it, it geographically, and, and as a result of geography, it historically and culturally falls into nine huge sociocultural realms, like West Africa is, a, is its own sort of room in the House of Islam. We wanted to see, are there movements happening there? Well, what about North Africa, the land of the Berbers, and where a lot of colonization and fighting's taking place for centuries? What's happening there? And then East Africa is a third room. The Arab world is a fourth room. The Persian world, the Iran and Shiite Islam is a fifth room. Turkestan, a sixth room. Western South Asia, with uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, a, a seventh room. Eastern South Asia with Bangladesh and the West Bengal is an eighth room. And then finally, the ninth room, Indo-Malaysia, that large archipelago stretching out into the Pacific. We wanted to see, you know, are these movements that we're hearing about clustered in one or two rooms? Are they, uh, are they different in different rooms? Uh, are Muslims responding to different types of gospel presentations? And we found all of the above. We found Muslims were coming to Christ in every room in the House of Islam. They were responding to different sorts of gospel presentations, uh, different things that were good news to them about Jesus. In some cases, like Iran, we found many, many Muslims were literally running away from Islam because Islam had been so identified with the Iranian Republic, uh, the Muslim Republic or Islamic Republic of Iran, that they were running away from that in their protest against the government. Many of them were running to Jesus, but they were also running to, to drug addiction, to hedonism. It was even a revival of Zoroastrianism. Whereas in other places, many people weren't running away from Islam at all. They just saw that as a part of their history, part of their culture. Uh, they still valued several good things about Islam, but they found Jesus. And they were literally running to Jesus because <laughs> only Jesus offered them salvation. And we wanted to capture that in one book. One of the things, obviously, on Voice of the Martyrs Radio that we talk about is persecution. If you've got Muslims coming to faith in Christ in their Muslim context— I would guess almost 100% of the time they're going to have some form of opposition, even persecution. Did you hear a lot of those kind of stories as you sat down with these Christians? Absolutely. That's one reason why we made a part of our definition of a movement, baptism. Because if you, if you have a thousand Muslims, you ask them, how many of you love Jesus? You get a thousand hands go up. They love the prophet Isa. And, uh, but the Isa that they're loving is that Isa portrayed incorrectly in the Quran as only a man. Now, he was a godly man. He was born of a virgin, the Quran says, and he'll be there at the judgment. But they say at the judgment, he'll tell everybody, follow Muhammad. Uh, so it's a, it's a horribly distorted view of a, of a, of a wonderful, godly you know, person in history. So when they're baptized, though, they're saying, no, I really believe yeah. that I'm passing from death into life. And for a Muslim, that's exactly what's happening because it remains a capital offense in Islam to convert from Islam. And they're making a statement that, that, that they're willing to die for Jesus. So that's a big, big deal. And uh, sadly, many do face death and, and experience that. However, it's more common. Muslims aren't bloodthirsty people. By and large, they're people just like you and me. They're family-oriented. They're community-oriented. They tend to have high moral values. And the thought of just going and killing someone is not something that people are just dying to do. But they can practice a sort of a social death. That often comes first because their purpose is to get that person to convert back to right. Islam. So if you can imagine what it was like during the Puritan time when someone would be shunned 
And to be shunned meant you were socially uh, killed. And in the Muslim world, that's that's often the case. So people experience a lot of that sort of persecution. You know, any sort of community aid that everyone depends upon, they don't get. Sometimes it's access to water. Sometimes they lose their job. Sometimes their wife and children will be taken away from them because they say, your husband has died. If he left Islam, he's dead, and you can't be married to a dead man, so we're going to take you away and marry you to someone else. These people uniformly are paying a tremendous price to follow Jesus. That's why um, I, I do value very highly their conversion and their testimony and their faith. Yeah, because we've had you know many of those stories mm. over the years, how do they keep that faith and keep that joy in the midst of that being shy and you know, being shunned is one thing to me as an American. In most of the Muslim cultures where it's much more community-oriented, being shunned really is like dying. Yeah. How do they go through that and hang on to their faith and hang on to the joy of following Christ in the midst of that? The presence of Christ means an awful lot to these people. He's very real to them. Them caring very much that they're right with God means an awful lot, too. I think sometimes we get in this sort of secular culture where I'm okay, you're okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. It's not so much that way in many of these cultures. There's a strong belief that God is what matters. And when you find that Jesus is God's way of salvation, then you're willing to pay any price to follow him. I've also found, Todd, that uh, so many of these people that I interviewed, they wanted to stay in their community so that they could win as many as possible to faith in Jesus. And that's what led them to getting to a movement. Mm -hmm. Once they hit 1,000, 2,000, you'd start to see them emerge from uh, obscurity, from anonymity, as they began coming out and saying, yeah, I used to be a Muslim. And it's something you can say when you've got, you know, a thousand brothers right. and sisters. It's something very difficult to say when you're the only when one. When you're the first guy, it's like, what? Yeah, one guy, he, he had paid a tremendous price to follow Jesus. His own father tried to kill him, and his mother cut him loose. His dad was going to come out and kill him that, that morning before morning prayers. His mother cut him loose and gave him a few takas to get out, which is taka was a, a Bangladeshi currency. But later he led his best friend to Christ. And as he baptized his friend, he says, Yesterday, there was only one of us. Today, there are two. Tomorrow, there may be 10,000. Wow. That's faith. (laughs) You know, one of the stories that we hear a lot from the Muslim world is this phenomenon of dreams and visions and supernatural things. Did you find that that's a, a significant part of a lot of these conversion stories? It is with an awful lot of them. It's not uniform. You know, there are some places where they listen to dreams more than others. Mm -hmm. What we also found is that the dreams, by and large, are probably not a new phenomenon. I sadly suspect that they may have been having dreams for 1,400 years. What they didn't have was someone to explain to them who this person was, this person glowing bright as the sun, reaching out to them in love with scars in his hand. Or this person holding forth a book saying, take and read. And, and, and they, it's been a nagging thing probably for centuries. Now they have that book. Right. Now they can download it from the Internet. There's people that are distributing those, those scriptures to them in difficult places. Uh, we like to go with this um, Matthew 17. When a Muslim, you will ask him, have you had this dream? And so many of them had this dream of this being glowing bright as the sun. And we'll pull out uh, Matthew 17 and have him just read the first two or three verses. And it's Jesus and his disciples going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
and said he was transfigured before them. His face shone as bright as the sun. His clothes were brighter and cleaner than anything could have washed them. And the gal said, that's the guy. That's the guy in my dream. Who is this? <laughs> what book is this? What book is this? And he said, why don't you keep that book and read it? And, and next week, I'll buy you a cup of coffee and let's talk. Wow. God is at work, and, mm. and you just get to come along and sort of sweep up the, the results. Well, that's the great news about all of this is that, you know, Jesus promised. He said, when the Comforter comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, as a young boy, when I would hear that, I think I would hear my mother's voice saying, <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's out there and he's going to convict you when you're— That's not what it says. It says, when the Comforter comes, he'll convict the world. That means in every community, everywhere in the world, we know that the Holy Spirit has already been at work there for the last 2,000 years. He's giving these dreams and visions and restless hearts and dissatisfaction. Oftentimes, when you see a lot of violence in the Muslim world, it's a result of this conviction, mm-hmm. this sense of, it's not right. I've got to tear the world I've apart. i take it into my own hands and make it right. And they make the most wonderful believers when they come to faith in Christ. Absolutely. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Dr. David Garrison. He's the executive director of Global Gates. He's also the author of a book called A Wind in the House of Islam. Dr. Garrison, I want to talk, and you mentioned earlier, we don't want to present a gospel wrapped in the American flag. And there is a perception in a lot of the Muslim world that that Christianity is an American religion. And, you know, they're just trying to make you into an American when they share the gospel with you. What does this look like when a Libyan Arab or a North African receives Christ, they obviously don't become an American. We know that. What does it look like as Jesus comes into their culture and their language and the way they do things? How does that sort of play out in real life? Well, Todd, the interesting thing is there are Muslims who come to Christ that sort of are trying to escape their culture. They want to be in the West. They want to be here. And sometimes it does raise questions about is it going to last? Because frankly, when they come here, they see such a secular, worldly culture that they can just deteriorate into that. And that's that's always tragic. But by and large, what, what we have seen, I'm trying to think as I run my mind across from West Africa to Indonesia, <laughs> there was no desire to leave their culture or their country. They love their country. They love their culture. They love their people, their family. And what's happened, what's changed is they now have this sense of God living in their heart through what Jesus did for them. And their passion is to turn not toward Western culture, but to turn toward their family and find ways to share that faith with others. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Dr. David Garrison. Dr. Garrison, as we finish up, we want to talk about Global Gates because one of the things that you're doing now is you're helping American Christians look with open hearts and open eyes at some of these people groups that are widely represented, well represented right here in the U.S. You, you don't have to go to North Africa to reach North Africans. You can do it in America. Talk a little bit about Global Gates and, and what it is, uh, and then help our listeners kind of think with the Lord's heart towards some of these people groups that are here. 
Yeah, that's uh, this was kind of a shock to us. I mean, we were, my family, we were called to be missionaries to the ends of the earth. We'd given our lives, we spent 31 years with the International Mission Board, Southern Baptist, wonderful experience, godly people, love them to death. And uh, it took us into the Muslim world. We studied Arabic. It took us into South Asia, living in India for a number of years and traveled throughout Central Asia, Mongolia, all these places. I think I always knew that America was a nation of immigrants, and it has been since the beginning. But what's different today is that when they come to America, they're not burning their bridges behind them. They're opening up highways of communication. It's like uh, portals today in New York City where you step into them and everyone is speaking Yemeni Arabic. They're on their phones talking to people back in Sana or Jibla or some other part of, of Yemen. There's other neighborhoods you walk into, 70,000 of those Yemenis in Bay Ridge, for example, right there. You can go to the West Coast and go to Fremont, California. And right downtown, there's a place called Little Kabul. 60,000 Afghan Muslims living in and around Fremont, California. And you can get all the, all the cuisine you could imagine of Afghanistan. But more importantly, they are staying connected with their family. Mm-hmm. And that's what wasn't possible even 20, 30 years ago. The internet, global communications, uh, WhatsApp, you know, and uh, Skype, they're talking to their family every day. And when we share the gospel with them here, it is flowing back to the ends of the earth. So as an American Christian, how can you, how can Global Gates equip me or train me or help me to reach into one of these Muslim communities that is well represented here in the U.S. You know, I tell people the beginning of everything is prayer because we have so many of us have been have been hurt by the Muslim world or feel threatened by the Muslim world, and it's understandable. I, I'm not here to poo-poo that or try to treat people like they're somehow lesser because they've had fear, and fear produces anger. But when you begin praying for people, it begins changing things. And some folks ask me, so how can you pray for the Muslim world? Of course, there's a 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. You can Google that. And every year during the month of Ramadan, hundreds of thousands of Christians are praying for Muslims. I also tell Christians, I said, just pray for Muhammad. You know, ask God to save Muhammad, because that's about 20% of the whole Muslim world is named Muhammad. <laughs> and then when you go down to the pharmacy and your pharmacist is named Dr. Muhammad, you say, I've been praying for you and uh, lead to a natural conversation. Global Gates is, uh, is created opportunities for what we call sifting weeks. And by sifting, we mean that in a community, if we know there's persons of peace in that community where the Holy Spirit's already at work in their heart, what we try to do is contact as many people as possible and sift out of those contacts those men and women, boys and girls who are having dreams, visions, a yearning in their heart for a right relationship, So we now have sifting weeks in New York City, Washington, D.C., Houston, Texas, the San Francisco Bay Area, particularly down around Fremont in that area. Uh, Also in uh, Detroit, Dearborn, Hamtramck, where we have a large uh, Arab as well as Bengali populations. So uh, if you'll visit our website and uh, look at ways you can get involved, our website is globalgates.info. And uh, we would love to, to walk with you and let you get to meet some of the nicest people in the world that God has brought to our global gateway cities and find among them those persons of peace who are ready to hear the gospel. We've been talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Dr. David Garrison. He is the executive director of Global Gates. 
Dr. Garrison, thank you. I think we could talk all day, but thank you for sharing your heart, uh, sharing some of your experience, and helping us celebrate what God is doing around the world among Muslims. Thank you, Todd. It's been my pleasure. Maybe you've joined us partway through this conversation and you're intrigued by what you've heard. You can listen to our entire conversation with David Garrison at vomradio.net. And while you're there, you'll find other past episodes of Voice of the Martyrs Radio that will give you a lot of insight into Islam and the way that God is working, calling people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Again, you can access all those archives at vomradio.net. And while you're there, drop me an email. There's a, a box where you can send me a message. I'd love to hear what you thought of this week's conversation. Next week, we've got a special guest here on VOM Radio, Middle East expert and author Joel Rosenberg is going to be here with us. He's written 13 novels and five nonfiction books. He's traveled the world, and he'll be bringing all of that experience to our conversation next week. I hope you'll join us again right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. <laughs>